0: Welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel.
1: Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people.
0: I'm Sefi Kogan.
1: And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Sefi, who did you talk to this week?
0: Well, it was a big week for me, Manya. I was down in Atlanta at AJC's Board of Governors Institute And we had a live show there for our Board of Governors um, featuring two very different, very interesting guests. We had Jody Rudoren, the former Jerusalem Bureau Chief for The New York Times, who recently took the position as Editor-in-Chief of The Forward. And Dr. Nachman Shai, a former member of Knesset for a decade, former IDF spokesman, former Senior Vice President of the Jewish Federations of North America. And I'm really excited for everyone to hear those two fascinating conversations. What about you, Mania?
1: Well, I'm excited to hear that. I spent Thursday scrambling a bit after the announcement uh, that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was being indicted. We reached out to Ronan Bergman, the staff writer for The New York Times, national security senior correspondent for Yediot Aronot, and the author of Rise and Kill First, the Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. To put it all in context, he phoned in from Tel Aviv.
0: Sounds fascinating. Let's hit the show.
1: As if the Israeli political drama could not get any more chaotic, Israel's attorney general announced Thursday that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will be indicted for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. The decision marks the first time in Israel's 70-plus year history that a serving prime minister has faced criminal charges. Joining us to explain what all this means is Ronan Bergman, staff writer for The New York Times, national security senior correspondent for Yediot Aranot, and the author of Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. Ronan is based in Tel Aviv and joins us now. Ronan, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Ronan.
1: So we know that Prime Minister Netanyahu is being charged with, as I said, bribery, fraud, breach of trust. But can you describe briefly the circumstances behind those three charges? What specifically is he being accused of?
2: Right. So there are three cases um, which are codenamed by the police with names of the thousands. Case 1000 refers to gifts that Netanyahu was asked and was given by two billionaires the field producer Arnon bilchin and the Australian tycoon James Packer,
1: hmm.
2: who for four or five years supplied Netanyahu and his wife, Sarah, according to their request or demand, what is described as a pipeline of pink champagne, cigars, and jewelry worth hundreds of thousands of shekels. Hmm. In return, as the Attorney General described that, for all sorts of benefits that Netanyahu was trying to get for Mr. Milchin, renewing his U.S. visa, different regulations that will help his businesses in Israel, etc. In that case, he is indicted in fraud and breach of trust.
1: Okay, so that's the first charge. The second case involves recordings Netanyahu himself made of conversations with the publisher of your newspaper, Noni Moses. Tell us about those charges.
2: Moses was, according to the indictment, was offering bribe to Netanyahu, asking him to diminish or exert his influence to legislate a law that would diminish the circulation of the rival paper to Yediot Ahono, a paper called Israel Hayom, Israel Today, mm-hmm. owned by Sheldon Edelstone, which is considered to be the main base of support in Israeli media for Netanyahu. And in return, Moses, according to the recording, promised Netanyahu to completely flip the coverage that Netanyahu was given by his paper, by Yediot Ahono. In that case, Netanyahu is, according to the Attorney General, did not start to execute his part of the deal. But the fact that he negotiated with Mr. Moses, the fact that he gave Moses the, uh, the impression that he's going to execute, is enough to charge him with breach of trust and fraud.
1: And this is the newspaper you work for, right?
2: Yes, this is the newspaper I work for. Um, Noni Moses is the owner and mm-hmm. the publisher of the newspaper. And of course, you know, it's a sad day for every Israeli that for the first time in our history, an acting prime minister is being indicted in any offense, and of course in bribe and all the other offenses, and as a journalist working in India, it's a sad day that the publisher is being charged in offering bribe. Yeah. The third case, case 4,000, which is the most severe of all cases, is dealing with a um, the relationship between Netanyahu and his wife, and his son though only him is charged with um, bribe um, with the who was the, the main media tycoon in Israel someone called Shaul Alovich and it is said that Netanyahu and his wife intervened repeatedly hundreds and hundreds of times not just in the way that Mr Netanyahu and his wife are being covered by the main news online a media website of Mr. Alovich, something called Walla. Mm-hmm. And they dictated everything or much of what was published about them during the elections, during the election day, and even followed up just to see that this is this executed. But not just that. They also intervened, according to the indictment, in the way that that website, very popular, or was very popular in Israel, treated their opponents. And not just their opponents from the left, but also their political rivals from the right, where they asked to amplify significantly the criticism published against these opponents. In return, according to the the, the indictment, Netanyahu basically turned the Ministry of Communication to be completely enslaved to the request of Mr. Alovich, granting him legislation and other change of regulation which benefited in billions of shekels into the pocket of Mr. Alovich. This is a very, very serious charge, bribe of the prime minister who is, you know, in charge uh, of or uh, received the trust of the public and need to make sure that he's not using the heavy power in his hand for his own personal political gain.
1: Okay. So now thank you for laying all of those charges out. Now, the charges come a day after Netanyahu's political opponent, Benny Gantz, kind of threw in the towel and announced he couldn't build a coalition government. And the likelihood of a third election in Israel became almost certain. So how does this change that, or does it?
2: Well, in a way, it does, because we are now in a a political crisis, unprecedented in the history of the country, but also in a legal crisis. It is not clear whether Mr. Netanyahu can lead a party and potentially be the next prime minister in the third election when criminal indictments are hanging over in his head. Mm-hmm. It's getting even more complicated because in order to submit the criminal charges, the attorney general first needs to turn to the chair of the house, the chair of the Knesset, and tell him, I have an intention to indict a member of your house, which is a uh, member of parliament Prime Minister Netanyahu. Netanyahu has 30 days to ask the Knesset committee to announce his immunity from indictment. If he doesn't, then after 30 days, automatically the indictments are submitted to court. But if he challenges that, then the Knesset committee needs to discuss it and then bring it to the Knesset to vote. The problem is that we do not have a coalition. Uh, you know, they failed again and again and again during the next two rounds. So we don't have a Knesset committee. But we are stuck in a situation that nobody ever thought would happen. Nobody dreamt could occur in the history of Israel. And it's not yet clear what I think would happen. The less likelihood, by the way, that someone from Likud would challenge the authority and leadership of Mr. Netanyahu and calling for an internal election inside the Likud. I'm not sure that this would happen. On the contrary.
3: Why not? Um,
2: Somewhat like President Trump, he... In the last few years, he's using extreme, severe attacks against anyone challenging his authority, including people inside the Likud. Anyone who he even saw potentially as an opponent was the target for the most horrific media, social media campaigns, uh, rumors, fabricated information, disinformation. People are afraid.
0: Mm -hmm. And what
2: they say in closed sessions with journalists and saying, you know, Netanyahu should have stepped down long ago, they are afraid to say publicly. Mr. Netanyahu has given a statement this evening in which he attacked, I would say, in the most brutal way. Uh, it's not the first one, but this one went beyond anything that he has done so far against the police, against the attorney general, against the prosecution office, the Ministry of Justice, accusing them in trying to lead a coup against a right wing government. He's basically saying, because I exercise a right-wing policy, these people, uh, the left-wing, the lefties, uh, the deep state, are challenging my authority and are trying to create a false indictment based on false evidence in order to take me down. Hmm. What he didn't mention, by the way, is that the people, all the people, all the state witnesses who turned against him were all people, many of them religious, many of them right-wingers. Uh, who he appointed.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So there is no conspiracy, there is no deep state, there is no lefties trying to topple him because of his right wing policy. The person who faces severe charges and is fighting in whatever he got. But when you are a prime minister, I think you you cannot fight with your power, with delegitimization of the whole law enforcement system, because this is not just about him now. People in Israel, hearing the prime minister, who speaks very well and very convincing, are now under the belief that the, this is a deep state, there's a continuous conspiracy against right wing here, and they should not believe, not the police and not the attorney general, not the Ministry of Justice, not just about the prime minister, but about everything.
1: People are listening to what Prime Minister Netanyahu is saying in the wake of the indictment and paying attention to that rather than. Questioning his credibility now that he is under indictment, it's actually the former that he's now have, has them questioning other authorities.
2: Yeah, I, I think Netanyahu has a very strong base,
1: even with the indictment during
2: the last. Yeah, that doesn't believe that the indictment are true and believe mm-hmm. Netanyahu believes that Netanyahu's claim that this is a left wing conspiracy uh, led by the media and the police to take him down. But there are other, of course, corridors in Israeli society. And I think that more and more people understand that Netanyahu's time as political leader of Israel is likely to be over soon. And I do believe that at a certain point, there might be people, including in the Likud, that would say, if we go to a third round and we are led by Netanyahu, the risk that we will lose everything is just too great. And um, if that is happening, he is replaced, then, of course, it opens up a whole different variety of options to a unity government with Benny Gantz, blue and white. Everyone who tried to predict Israeli politics in the last year and a half was wrong So mm. on a daily basis. So everything is so hectic and so speedy that I'm not going to make any prediction on what will happen.
1: It does seem awfully unpredictable. The days to come will be really very interesting. Uh, Ronan Bergman, thank you so much for joining us and explaining all of this drama to us.
2: It's an honor and pleasure. Thank you, Manu.
0: Jody Rudoran spent four years as the Jerusalem bureau chief for the New York Times, one of the most vaunted postings in journalism. In that role, her reporting featured prominently not only in the most important newspaper in America, but in endless Shabbat dinner discussions and heated Facebook debates. Later in her career at the time, she served as an associate managing editor. Earlier this year, Jody became editor-in-chief of the Jewish Daily Forward, one of the oldest Jewish news outlets in the country. In that role, she instantly becomes one of the chief observers of and opinion shapers for American Judaism. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jody Rudoren. <laughs> so, Jody, you and I have been talking a little bit about where we're going to go with this conversation, but before we dive into it, I wanted to ask, you know, the Forward has a storied history. Uh, my, my favorite Forward fun fact, um, I love fun facts. My favorite Forward fun fact is that the radio station that the Forward used to own had the call sign, remember call signs, the uh, four podcasts, um, W-E-V-D. Why, do people know this? Why, because it was Eugene V. Debs' initials. Um, so the Forward has a, a, a hardcore socialist history um, now it's, I would say, the, the left-leaning end of mainstream, and you're writing the new chapter of, uh, of The Forward. What, what motivated you to leave The Times and come to The Forward?
4: Well, thanks uh, for having me, Stephanie. It's, it's great to be here in Atlanta um, with this audience and on your podcast. As you said, The Forward has this kind of amazing history founded in 1897. It does have um, labor Zionist and, and socialist roots. Um, at the time, in the early part of the 20th century, there, were actually, there was a communist paper and a socialist paper, all in Yiddish, or many Yiddish dailies, and at its height, the foreword um, had more subscribers than the New York Times. It had more than a quarter million subscribers, and it's part of its legacy and part of its kind of amazing history and part of what I admire about it is it played this incredible role in this really important chapter in American Jewish history of really um, welcoming Uh, immigrants to the Lower East Side and and showing them a little bit about how to be American. Um, And and now we're in this interesting flipped position of um, having a huge opportunity to speak to the American Jewish community, the diverse and fragmented often and polarized often American Jewish community, um, and and maybe helping the kind of very broadly defined group of people who feel Jewish in some way. learn a little bit more about how to be Jewish or how to connect with their own Jewish identity, whatever that, that may look like. So for me, I, had spent, I spent more than 20 years working at the New York Times. It was an amazing um, place to work. And I got to do unbelievable things in many different jobs there, including the nearly four years I spent in Jerusalem. Um, and the New York Times, you know, its, it's survival and it's, its ability to thrive is, is crucial to our democracy. And I'm sort of thrilled that it's, like, well on its way to finding its new model, and, you know, 150 million people read the New York Times every month, and nearly 5 million of them are subscribing or paying for the New York Times, which is incredible, and I Podcasts
0: just, are pretty important over there, too.
4: And they have the most uh, successful podcasts in the... After of ours. the 800,000... 814,000 podcasts I heard this morning there are, so... <laughs> but the Daily is a, is a great one, and... Um, but I just, as I got more and more focused on digital innovation and audience strategy, I was really concerned about the rest of the journalism industry, um, local news deserts, and different kind of community or interest-based publications that were had not figured out what was the thing that people most needed, how to distribute it, how to, how to speak to the audience of, of today, where everything's on the phone and everything's kind of integrated. And uh, when the Forward took the painful decision to end its print entirely earlier in 2019, it struck me that while that was, uh, of course, painful, um, it was also very bold and uh, really showed the deep commitment to innovation that I think is essential for journalism of tomorrow. And so I was really, that piqued my interest. uh, The publisher and CEO of the Forward lives in my town. We went to lunch. She wanted to pick my brains about job candidates, people who might take over as editor-in-chief. I gave her a bunch of names, and then I couldn't get the conversation out of my head, and I said, actually, maybe I'd like to do it. I feel I'll go, at the risk of going on too long, I'm sorry, but just to say, look, we are in a moment of crisis in American journalism, or global journalism, really, and also a real crisis in, in American Judaism, where um, I think the, the journalism I've talked about a little bit, and in Judaism, I just think I'm deeply concerned about... People's inability to talk to each other and the polarization of debate and of the organized community, and I really think the forward, with its um, storied legacy and widespread kind of connection to people's paths, can can meet that opportunity and that challenge by providing a real platform for civil discourse on the issues that divide us. So that's what I'm going to try to do.
0: So thank you for that perfect setup, because the question that I want to uh, I want to really dig into in, in the time we have remaining, is similar to that. I want to know, what is the greatest challenge facing American Jews today? And I'll, I'll put all my cards out on the table. This was inspired by something you tweeted last week, that something was the greatest challenge facing American Jews today. You can give that as your answer. You're welcome to change your answer. But, but. Um... <laughs> and
4: then have that held against you as a flip-flopper?
0: <laughs> uh, well, you're in journalism, not politics, right? Right, That's good right. point, good point. So, so what is it? You know what.
4: So the the tweet I think you saw was related to an op-ed uh, written in the New York Times by a college student, I forget where. Blake
0: Flayton? Yes. Who's a junior, sophomore, sophomore at George Washington University.
4: And essentially, I mean, essentially the piece talked about how difficult he, I think he identified himself as a liberal Zionist and a, a general progressive politically, and how difficult he was finding it to be basically who he was on an American college campus today. And I thought it was a very well-written piece, um, so it gives me confidence in uh, the writing of the younger generation, but it just struck me as really tragic. Like, these places, universities like news organizations are supposed to be about um, engagement with ideas, with difficult ideas, connections to people who disagree with you, and, and to teach you how to make an argument and defend your ideas, but also, you know, honestly, actually, not even that. To, to open your mind to how to think about everything and to expose you to lots of ideas before you even maybe decide who you are and what you think. And um, that's really what I think journalism is about too, but universities are sort of the best parallel to it. And this crisis that is happening on universities of people's kind of inability to talk to each other, I think primarily about Israel, but I think it's extending into different aspects of of being Jewish, Um, and then the the sort of separate and related crisis, which I think blew up a day or two after that op-ed of campuses inviting speakers and protesters drowning them out, and like that whole thing kind of falling apart. I guess I'm just really worried about people not being able to talk to each other. I know a lot of my friends who have older kids than mine, kids in college, kids in their 20s, they are having trouble talking to their own families, their own children about, again, I think it starts with Israel, but then I think it becomes about who we are as Jews. I think the organized um, Jewish community has failed in this way and maybe is, is worsening things. I think people are, this is, the community is largely like defining people out of the, of the kind of acceptable realms of debate and really getting super polarized. And when I was in Jerusalem and covering the conflict, I felt like it was different than anything I'd ever covered in its polarization, in the way that people thought about these issues based on narrative and identity, and therefore couldn't really empathetically understand the other points of view. And then I came back at the beginning of 2016, and all the things I found unique about covering that situation are now affecting everything, everything in America, everything in American politics. But the Jews were ahead um, in getting <laughs> super polarized and being unable to talk to each other. Um, anyway, I, this is the thing I'm most worried about, and I, you know, it's really one of the main things I'm hoping we can participate in solving is, is, you know, getting people to listen better and to think differently and to just understand. I mean, look, for me, one of the things that's so great about this job and, you know, Judaism and journalism are really based on a lot of the same things where they share a lot of key values, asking questions, telling stories, argument, debate, respectful debate, i, I been saying that, tell me, see see if we can try this out on your audience. I feel like the Talmud is like the original crowdsourced digital platform. That's my, that's my, does that work
0: for people? Before Wikipedia, yeah.
4: Yeah, it's very, right, exactly.
0: Um, So the legendary chronicler of of Zionist ideas, uh, American Jewish historian, um, Arthur Hertzberg, said the Jews are like everybody else, only more so. Um,
4: That reminds me of a friend of mine told me once, uh, about 10 years ago, when I was complaining about one of my parents, she said that people are like wine, they intensify with age. Is that the same joke? I don't know. It, it helped.
0: Um, you know, I, I was also struck by, um, by Blake's op-ed. Um, I, I also thought it was uh, fabulous. Uh, as someone who's worked a lot with, uh, with American Jewish college students, it, it pointed to a lot of things that I saw when I was in college myself. Surprisingly, not all that long ago, and also uh, when I was uh, when I've been working with college students, um, I was struck by the reaction on Twitter to it, though, from many Jews, many kind of you know progressive Jews, for whom Judaism is very important to them, and Israel, in their own way, is very important to them. But they were going after this guy. I mean, this you know this nineteen-year-old kid saying you know well. Good, you know you should have this rude awakening when you get to, to college campus. The college campus is a time to leave behind your you know childish misapprehensions about Israel. It's not actually a good place and and now it's time for you to be woken up to it. And you're saying you know the the Jewish community is is drawing too many lines, right? I might say those people should you know belo- like that's not the kind of civil discourse that belongs in the boundaries, is it?
4: Well, it's a really good question. I have, I have kind of two responses to it. I mean, one is my, to me, the biggest sin is defining people out of the debate. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we get anywhere by defining people out of the debate, and I, except for some people. But, like, <laughs> I mean, I get it. I know, you know, this is, like, a little bit of a difference of the Ford. I mean, right, I get it. Like, you know, right, we don't have to, like, deeply engage with people who are really Nazis. I get that. But I'm just saying, like, really, like, the broad swath of American Jews believe there should be a Jewish state in Israel and are worried about some aspects of it. So really, that's a pretty big spectrum. And like, if you want to define a way- are, are those your red lines? No, no, I'm, okay. those are not my red lines. I think certainly people who don't believe in Jewish state should be part But in general, we should look not to define people out of the debate. Mm-hmm. We should do that partly because we care about the community and the growth and the survival of Judaism. And defining people out of the debate is not a way to grow your audience, or no matter what you're doing, right? So that's my first response to it, is let's, not, let's really work hard not to define people out of the debate, as long as they are making a reasonable point and doing it respectfully. The second thing I would say is that... Um, I, I know people have a very a visceral reaction to the group, if not now, and that it's, it's part of some people think it should be defined out of the debate. But the core of how those kids say they started, right, which is a bunch of people who went to day schools, who went then either to college or out into the world and felt betrayed by their education, felt that they had been, things had been hidden from them rather than encouraging them to engage with the difficult aspects of our history and our complexity, that is a failure of some levels of institution. And Everybody who's working in in Jewish or Israeli education, who works in summer camps, who works in religious schools, who works in day schools, needs to really grapple with what a meaningful, fair um, education is that is going to equip people with how to think, how to engage, and not let them feel betrayed and shocked and whatever. So I think that that response that they were having, oh, good, you should, you know, face this shock. It's like, well, but yeah, but why couldn't we? Why wasn't what's his name Blake? Why wasn't Blake like all along? Like, and I don't know anything about his background or his education, but I'm just saying, like, people should not struggle with why. Why were people should not be asking their parents why did you keep this from me? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you know we should be mature as a as a people and as institutions and as families and grapple with the difficult subjects. Um, whether it's Israel or anything else.
0: It's interesting. This is something I, I talk about a lot in in my work. I agree with you that, you know, we can't present Israel as Jewish Disneyland where nothing bad ever happens and even the McDonald's is kosher, right? That's not a recipe for success, for talking with our, our young people uh, about Israel. And, and AJC's programs, we, you know, do try to engage and, and expose people to multiple narratives. Um, but... but I also think that there's a tendency among some of the folks that you're talking about to throw away one childish, simplistic Israel is good, nothing bad ever happens, their perspective for another, frankly, childish, simplistic Israel is bad, they have nothing good to contribute to the world perspective.
4: What other place or problem or conflict is like that? Where <laughs> everything is like, oh, it's just, you know, Disneyland or it's hell? I mean, like things are not <laughs> mostly like that. Mostly things are complicated and have multiple perspectives and nuance and need deep engagement for understanding and I mean this works well for journalism because otherwise we wouldn't have much to do if the world was really simple we wouldn't have to explain it to people but I think that like I we're Jews we love complexity
0: and nuance I had a plan for this interview, and we got a little bit derailed because you're too interesting. Here's here's the little wrinkle I wanted to introduce and that we're going to to engage with the mirror image of when we bring Nachman up in in a minute. The question that I asked you, what is the greatest challenge facing American Jews? I'm also interested in hearing from you, as an American Jew, how you think an Israeli might answer that question. You You spent four years in Jerusalem as the bureau chief. Um, for the New York Times, put yourself back in those shoes, in those tevas, in those naot, right? And think, you know, what would an Israeli say is the greatest challenge facing American Jews today?
4: You've totally distracted me by mentioning my naot, which have worn out. (laughs) Okay, anyway, look, I I actually think it's not um, connected to the one I said at all. I think that what a lot of Israelis would say is the biggest problem facing American Jews is assimilation. Um, or, and they probably wouldn't use that word, assimilatia, I don't know. What is the word? No, they wouldn't say that. They would just say they're not Jewish enough. They don't know they're Jews. And I, I think that secular chilonim in Israel would actually, this is what they would say. Because one of the things that was most enlightening for me, or that I really learned going there after you know being a reasonably connected Jew for 40 years here, was... What it means to be a secular Jew there is so uh, much more Jewish than what it means to be a secular Jew here. And, I mean, my best way of expressing this is, um, as many people know, a lot of Chilonim go hiking every Shabbat morning. That's, like, their religious thing to do on Saturday mornings. And they either go with their families or they go in these hiking groups. And the hikes that they take are generally through, like, biblical lands. And so the stories that they tell on the hikes, the things they're teaching their kids are about, you know, our history. Actually, it's a mix of biblical and of like modern Israeli history that they're sort of hiking through. And so, it's, so this, this secularism is this very strongly Jewish secularism. And I think that they um, really think that it's not like they I think that so the religious Jews think that people, we're not religious enough, whether that's because they don't believe in liberal Judaism or whatever, like reform and conservative Judaism. And I think the secular Jews just think we don't know who we are.
0: One of the things AJC is committed to doing is bridging that divide, right, the Israel-diaspora divide. So, you know, you're a communicator. How do we get people speaking the same language? Um, How do we bridge the fact that their worries for us are different from our worries for ourselves and vice versa? Boy, I'm glad I don't have to solve that problem, but that's, no,
4: (laughs) that's a good question. Look, I do think, I, I mean, there's a small slice of it, but yeah, obviously the, the answer is exposure, right? So, But like meaningful exposure. So American Jews make these pilgrimages to Israel and don't actually engage with any Israelis in any meaningful way. So finding more programs, for lack of a better world, so that people can sit in people's homes or go on hikes with families or whatever would be great. I definitely, I know when I was um, writing some stories that had to do with Egalitarianism at the wall or things that these are these things that Americans care so much about and no Israelis really care about. I definitely heard from Israelis that when they come here, you know, their perception of what like a reform synagogue is is really off and then they come and they see and they're really surprised by that and very moved by that. So I think both, you know, real exchanges both ways probably is very meaningful.
0: Jody, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Nachman Shai is a former IDF spokesman, a former chair of the Israel Broadcasting Authority, former senior vice president of the Jewish Federations of North America, and a former member of Knesset for 10 years for the Kadima Party and then the Labor Party. He has devoted his life to working for Israel and the Jewish people. He is currently based at Emory University right here in Atlanta, um, where he will be uh, teaching a course uh, next semester on Israel, Israeli politics, Israeli global diplomacy, right? Public diplomacy. And I'm thrilled to have him here with us on People of the Pod. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nachman Shai. We're going to get to the same kinds of questions that Jody uh, and I discussed, but I want to start off with a, a really easy one. Uh, you have a decade of experience in, uh, in Israeli politics, surely you can tell us who will be the next Prime Minister of Israel.
3: I'm going to bet that Bibi is going to be Israel's next Prime Minister, as well as the past Prime Minister. Um, currently, uh, he's meeting with, uh, with Benny Gantz, the chair of the Blue and White uh, uh, Party. Um, I assume, you know, profits disappeared in our history, no longer. Uh, but uh, that's my assumption, that he will be finally be able to uh, persuade Guns to join his part, his government, and Lieberman will follow suit. But if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Well, he's, he should you can poli- come and visit with me in Atlanta, I'll be here. for <laughs> He should another. be a
0: political rival of yours, right? You were in the Labour Party, so. I, no,
3: no, yeah, it's, it's not a matter of friendship. I disagree with most of uh, Netanyahu's positions. But I'm just uh, watching the way he's running his own uh, politics. And uh, it seems like he has a better chance, OK? Let's put it this way. Uh, things may change. Blue and White has no, no chance to form a coalition. Uh, so, going for the third time to general elections, it has never happened in our history, uh, they may lose what they have in their hands right now. Of course, they may also win the elections, but I don't expect that to happen. So, if I were Benny Gantz, I know it's hard, it may cost him, but he, he should join Netanyahu. I'm just learning uh, that from from our political history: uh, all those who refused to join Netanyahu in the parties that I belong to disappeared. Hmm. Tzipi Livni, uh, Sheli Yekimovich, Bujar they all lost their political positions. Then they went otherwise. They still exist somewhere, and are nice people, and I like them a lot, more or less. But uh, <laughs> but that's the way it is. So if. Uh, Benny Gantz, who is actually a newcomer to Israel politics, uh, he's been a chief of staff, as you know, spent some years uh, in uh, business, and just became a politician, a year ago, if he wants to stay in politics and survive, the best option is to come and serve with Netanyahu in the same government as a, currently as a defense minister, and maybe in rotation as a a prime minister, that may be also the case. But otherwise, his prospect to survive seemed to be very uh, small, very narrow, because the entire entity called blue and white is not really a party. It's not really a party. It's that that's a composition of three different parties that uh, figured out that the best for them is to go in one block. But when it comes to a real test like this one, they go different ways. Uh, Yair Lapid and Gantz disagree on the question whether they should join the coalition or not. That may bring about a divide within blue and white and other things. So I'm, I'm just sharing with you my own uh, opinion or assessment. I've been 10 years in the Knesset, but in general I've been in Israel all my life. And uh, it seems like Bibi is gonna do it again, but please, Don't blame me if it doesn't want it, okay? I'm I'm just trying to figure out what will be the next stage. We know, uh, actually tomorrow night uh, Gant's chance to form a coalition expires. Then the mandate goes to the entire Knesset. 61 Knesset members may suggest or offer a candidate that will be uh, accepted by all of them. That will be very tough, very tough. So the next stage will be third election in one year.
0: Nahman, on, let me just ask you one, one more thing before sure. we dive into the meat. Um, we were talking a little bit over the course of this institute about, um, about what happened yesterday, about the announcement from Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration about um, that America will no longer, um, no longer holds the legal opinion that, that settlements are, uh, are illegal according to international law. What, what, what do you think about that? Was that
3: political, do you think? First of all, it was political, very political. Uh, This was the last gift that uh, the president can give Netanyahu in order to help him. Not much much left now. Uh, It was extremely important to Netanyahu to prove to his uh, uh, coalition members uh, and to the entire Israeli public that he can get the best from this administration. And actually he did. Uh, Jerusalem, Golan Heights, now uh, settlements. I don't know what else remains here.
0: The Palestinians are probably also asking what else remains. (laughs)
3: uh,
0: Yeah, I'm I'm
3: not spokesman for the Palestinians, but uh, they have their own issue with that. Um, I don't know if it's gonna help him or not, but he will absolutely use it. He went this morning to Gush Etzion right away to cash on that to make a statement. And by the way, Gush Etzion is actually part of the national consensus in Israel, so it didn't raise too much problems with that. Gush Etzion is part of Jerusalem. Uh, even me, I'm, I belong to the labor, but I feel like the entire Jerusalem bloc should remain in, under Israel government in any future uh, solution. Uh, the major question, as I did tell you before, Sefi, is not about the settlements. Is about Israel, is about us. And I'm asking myself, um, I'm not that young, unfortunately. I wish I were. And I've been, living, I've been living there for quite a number of years. And I'm asking myself in which country my uh, seven granddaughters uh, and son will live. Because when my parents immigrated to Palestine in the 30s, from Belarus and from Poland, they wanted to live in a Zionist state. Later on, in a Jewish democratic one. And I carry the legacy, okay? I feel that I continue their way. And I want my children and my grandchildren to go the same way. Because otherwise, what's Israel is all about? If it's not Jewish, and if it's not democratic. Pompeo doesn't care, and this administration doesn't care for what Israel is gonna be, but I do, and my friends do, and we would like to make sure that this state will remain Jewish and democratic. And if it's not, thank you, but if it's not, what's Israel all about? What is it? It's another state in the world. If it's not like it is now, with 80, 20%. And we do have to respect the 20% minority of Arabs. Not the way the Prime Minister has been going and talking about them recently. They are not all looking for the destruction of the state of Israel, my goodness. No. Because the doctors, the doctors, not the one, the doctors that took care of me in Adassa Hospital recently were all Arabs. And the pharmacy I'm going to buy my medicine are all Arabs. Do, that, do I trust them? I do. We live together. And the restaurant I'm going to eat at night is also in Arab, in Abu Ghosh. We live together. And I don't see in their eyes they want to dis- destroy the state of Israel. No chance, anyhow. We live together. And this is the minority. We are the majority, and we would like to live in a Jewish in a state where Jews are the majority. Okay? But if Pompeo's I don't know what was his vision, and if he has a vision when it comes to Israel. What's the idea? So next step step will be annexation of the territories. Because if settlements are legal, maybe annexation of the territories will be legal as well. And then what? 12 million, 13 million, 14 million people will be living between the Jordan River and the sea, but only half of them are Jewish. With the highest birth rate in the Western world, we Israelis are doing very well. Okay, my kids, I praise them every day. They have already produced seven grandchildren and they are doing well. Maybe they will continue. It's not enough. And the lady next sitting next to me has a son with seven children in Israel, right? Eight. Sorry, sorry. Maybe he was born on the way I went to the stage. <laughs> no, sorry. You told me eight. So, so It was hard for me.
0: So let, so let me ask you this, Nachman. Yes. And, and I'm going to ask you, let's, instead of using that as a segue, let's wipe the slate clean because I don't want to prime you to give a certain answer. Um, assume we, we hadn't just been talking about Israeli politics and Palestinians and Jewish Democratic State and all that. If I had just asked you cold, what would you tell me if I asked the question, what is the greatest challenge facing Israeli Jews?
3: To survive, just to survive. First of all, when I went to bed last night here in Atlanta, I couldn't sleep because a few hours before, four rockets were fired from Syria into the Golan Heights. And I asked myself, what the hell is going there? It's not because I'm not in Israel. Well, I have more credit for myself. But because just last week, a week ago, we were engaged with Gaza, right? This week, it's the Golan Heights. Next week, it will be probably Lebanon. It's not over. It's not over. Israel's survival is not secured. Although we have the best, the greatest, and the most sophisticated army or military, military forces in the Middle East, and we can beat and defeat every enemy, and maybe all of them together, still, we are not safe. When thousands of Israelis last night in the Golan Heights heard the red alert sign and went to uh, protected areas, that means that they are not safe. So first of all, I would like Israel to be safe. And secondly, as I said before, to be a Jewish state and to be a democratic state. And thirdly, or maybe fourthly, to be a moral state, to preserve Jewish morale. I believe in that, I believe it exists, and this is our commitment.
0: So let me ask you the same flip that I asked Jody, and and I I want to acknowledge here, I'm not asking the easy question, right? The the easy question would be to ask you what Israeli Jews think is the greatest challenge facing American Jews, but I'm I'm pushing you, as I push Jody, to kind of think outside the box a little bit. And I'm wondering, can you put yourself in our shoes? What do you think we would say is the greatest challenge facing Israel today?
3: I think that you will agree with me that the first challenge is to to survive. And secondly, I believe that you would like to see Israel preserving the same values that kept you close to to us for the last 70 years because those values are in danger. Okay? I cannot analyze all the political shifts in Israel, but I can tell you very openly, and I feel home here with you guys because I used to meet you in Israel and I know what you are doing in this country and I have a lot of appreciation to you, the same values from our side are in danger. One of them is the relationship between Jews all around the world that most of the Israelis do not Know and do not recognize, but there are much more in there. And the major thing is human rights, to preserve human rights, to respect minority, to look at someone else's eyes and to tell yourself, I'm doing everything that he or she will be equal to me. We are equal. Human beings are equal. That, I'm not sure we do our best to maintain or to preserve in Israel today. And this is when you look at us, you ask yourselves, where are all those values? Did they really disappear? Or they may come
0: back sooner or later? So you're teaching a course on, on public diplomacy, mm-hmm. Israel's public diplomacy. And I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of wondering if there's a, a dissonance, if there's some disagreement between promoting Israel through public diplomacy and also demanding that Israel hold itself to a, a higher standard to, to a certain, you know, is is it is it, what would you like to see from American Jews? You know, how, how do you allocate those resources between helping other Americans understand why it's so important to love Israel, to stand by Israel, to appreciate the U.S. as a relationship? And it sounds like you are worried about American Jews pushing back and saying that Israel needs to hold itself to certain moral standards? You
3: no, know, no, I, I, I do, uh, well, I, I, I say sometimes different things when I talk to Jewish audience and non-Jewish audience, okay, it's legitimate. Uh, from non-Jewish uh, audience, I expect to, re- to respect Israel as a legitimate state, as a normal one. A normal one, like any other state in the world. But of course it has to be legitimate because the entire campaign right now, and by the way, we discussed it earlier, it's not a new campaign, it has been there for quite a long time, and I see here some people with white hair in the audience, so you remember that BDS is just a new definition to other anti-Israeli phenomena that have been around for quite a number of years. That's a new name, but it hasn't changed the the essence, the content of of BDS, Uh, but when I talk to Non-Jews are just telling them Israel is a normal state like any other state, it deserves to be treated the same way, it has to be given the same, the same attitude by the world parliament opinion, by other states, by international organizations and so on and so forth. That's what I expect to happen and that's what we are fighting for any, any, as much as we can. From a Jewish audience like you, I expect And excuse me for saying that, you have to be involved in Israeli affairs. Don't sit on the fence and watch what's going on inside. You are part of us. And I know that this attitude is not always welcomed. Some, and again, I was very much involved in encouraging uh, relations between Israel and the diaspora and Knesset. I led two caucuses on this uh, relations and so on, I've I've done a lot, as much as I could as a Knesset member, and and before that as well. I invite you to take part in the Israeli public discourse, the internal one, and to voice your opinions. Even if you don't live in Israel, not only the lady sitting next to me with a son with eight grandchildren (laughs) in Israel, maybe nine, (laughs) and I welcome every one of them. (laughs) <laughs> Believe me. But do not hesitate to express your own opinions about Israel. Because this is your responsibility, as far as I can see it, as Jews. And if I don't regard it as an intervention in Israeli affairs, I welcome your opinions. I would like to hear what you have to say. And I will not tell you, well, you live in Atlanta and you don't see four rockets f- f- in the air. If you live in Atlanta, you see other, whatever, usually it's the largest airport airport in America,
0: so you see aircraft going. Delta Delta planes back and forth. Delta plane to
3: wherever. (laughs) No, if you feel that Israel is your second home, you're absolutely eligible to talk and discuss and so-called interfere in our life in Israel. This is your responsibility as Jews. This is your state as much as it's ours. I know you feel a little bit intimidated. You say, well, Nachman, but we were told by former uh, leaders of our organization of, no, please, the world has changed. First, First of all, you know everything which is going in Israel, right? You don't need me any longer or any other emissary from Israel. Not only that you have family members in Israel, like many of you send their kids to live in Israel. But because you can watch Israel in the news, and you can learn, and you read, and you know every single thing. But secondly, there are just 14 million Jews in the world. That's all. And each one should care for the other. It's not that we live there and you live here. We live together in the same planet. And your life are extremely important to us. I hope so. I do my best. And our life in Israel should be extremely important to you.
0: Nachman, thank you so much for joining us. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Jessica Steinberg of the Times of Israel. Manya, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about?
1: (laughs) Well, Sefi, I have a three-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son, and so we will be talking a lot about Sesame Street this week, which celebrated its golden anniversary. Did you watch Sesame Street as a kid? I did. Yeah? Jessica, what about you? Absolutely. And who were your favorite characters?
0: I was always partial to... um, Mr. Snuffleupagus, oh, uh, yes. Big Bird's imaginary best friend.
1: <laughs> and Jessica, what about you?
5: I did love Big Bird a lot, um, and Ernie and Bert really were probably oh, my favorites, though. Yes. Actually, wonderful.
1: And I, I um, was dismayed to find out recently, watching it with my children, that Mr. Snuffleupagus is no longer a quote unquote figment of Big Bird's imagination. Everyone sees him. Wow. <laughs> it was very disappointing. Welcome
0: to the ranks of the real monsters, Mr. Snuffleupagus. <laughs> Wow, um, that's like
5: saying that the tooth fairy doesn't exist. Okay, <laughs> I'll have
0: to deal with that.
1: Well, my favorite character was Kermit the Frog, especially his portrayal of a TV news reporter, which should come as no surprise. Um, but I might soon have a new favorite character, and his name is Jod. Jod has been introduced to children, or will be introduced to children, in Syrian refugee camps as one of them. He is the star of Alan Simsim, Sim, or Welcome Sesame, an Arabic-language version of Sesame Street that has been co-produced by Sesame Workshop and the International Rescue Committee. It teaches letters and numbers, yes, But it also teaches emotional coping measures for the millions, yes, millions, of children who have been traumatically displaced from their homes and may remain displaced for decades, especially as countries like the United States continue to cut the number of refugees it allows in. 12 million refugees, 12 million, 6 million of them are children. And those are the stats. Get this, only 2% of humanitarian aid for education uh, for refugees... 2%. And so once again, Sesame Street has come to the rescue, just as it did in the late 1960s when it first debuted. Jod, his friend Basma, and a friendly goat, Mazuza, debut in 20 countries across the Middle East in February 2020 via satellite dishes in the refugee camps. And from time to time, there will be guest appearances by Cookie Monster, Grover, and Elmo. I have to say, Cookie Monster was one of my favorites as well. The project is funded with a $100 million grant from the MacArthur Foundation. And the grant also covers direct services to these families whose children have never been outside the camps. And therefore, they don't know fundamentals that we take for granted, such as imagination or basic information like fish come from the sea. While the focus will be more on emotional tools, these fundamentals will also be covered as well. And I really do applaud Sesame Workshop for taking this project on. And I have to say, AJC is also exploring new ways to reach out to uh, the Arab world in the Arabic language, and we'll be hearing more about that in the months to come. But this project in particular is just really fascinating to me, and that's what we'll be talking about at our table. Beautiful. Jessica, what will you be talking about at your Shabbat table? Uh, well, we'll be planning ahead
5: for next week, which is Thanksgiving for us, um, as America. even though we are Americans living in Israel. Um, I've been living in Israel for tw- nearly 25 years And in all of those years, I have never missed a Thanksgiving, probably because it just harkens back to my childhood growing up in Long Island, New York, where we were uh, the rabbi's family and we never missed a Thanksgiving because it was that holiday that we felt like everyone else. Mm
1: -hmm. And
5: coming to Israel, even though it's a holiday that makes me not like everyone else, it's uh, become this funny way that Americans celebrate their American-ness in Israel. You have to order your turkey weeks in advance. You have to scour the Russian supermarkets for cranberries. <laughs> you, uh, For many years, you had to cook your own pumpkin in order to make any kind of pumpkin dish. Now you can get canned pumpkin. Oh, wow. And really, all the all the important side dishes and main dishes for this holiday. And for a long time, I only invited American friends. I would not invite any Israeli friends or Russian friends or friends, uh, Arabic-speaking friends. I would only invite people who had American, who were Americans uh, by nationality. Um, this, now, all these years later, I'm a little bit easier about it. But it's a tradition I really like to teach to my kids and that we do actually on Thursday and again on Friday night, because we, of course, don't have off on Thursday. Oh. But we'll be planning ahead for next week.
1: So you make Thanksgiving a Shabbat celebration as well. You combine it.
5: We do. We do. We do it on Thursday with the friends. And on Friday night, we have family. Um, I have extended family living in Israel. They come and they eat Thanksgiving with us. We make that funny turkey challah that circulated on Facebook and on social media a few years ago. And, uh, and we, I basically make two turkeys two days in a row. It's kind of insane, something that even my mother never would have done. And to the extent that I even wrote a children's book about it a few years ago called Not This Turkey, um, which was a P.J. Library book and Uh. also um, won a couple of awards. And essentially it's about a real life family back in the early 1950s living in New York. And they were immigrants from Germany and they celebrated their first Thanksgiving when the father won a turkey at his factory job and they didn't know how to prepare turkey. And, you know, hilarity ensues as he brings home the live turkey on the subway and it escapes from him. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm more engaged in Thanksgiving probably than I ever would be if I had stayed in the States.
1: That's awesome. I am going to seek out that PJ Library book for my kids. Sounds hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) It is pretty funny. It's pretty funny. (laughs) Well, enjoy. Enjoy your meal and or meals, I should say. Sefi, how about you?
0: Well, a major focus of the AJC Board of Governors program I was at in Atlanta this week was the future of Black Jewish relations. These were inspiring conversations, and it is great to know that my colleagues are doing this crucial work. But while thinking about the future of Black Jewish ties, I was reminded of a truly remarkable part of Black Jewish history that I think I'll be sharing at my Shabbat table this week. When the Supreme Court ruled that school segregation was illegal in 1954's Brown v. Board of Ed decision, one important factor in that was the work of doctors Kenneth and Mamie Clark, pioneering black psychologists and actually the first and second black people to get PhDs in psychology from Columbia University. In their famous doll test, The couple gave black and white children black and white dolls and asked them which toys they preferred, which were smarter, which were prettier. The black children and white children both preferred the white dolls. The Clarks used this result to highlight the ways in which segregation was harmful to the emotional development and self-esteem of black kids. Their work was clearly persuasive. Because in his decision, Chief Justice Earl Warren, writing for the unanimous court, specifically cited the Dahl test as one of the reasons the court was striking down segregation. What does all this have to do with AJC? Well, this is not widely known, but Kenneth and Mamie Clark's critical research was funded by a grant from AJC. In a press release welcoming the court's decision, AJC said, In the midst of the free world struggle against the forces of totalitarianism, America has once again demonstrated that democratic practices must constantly be invigorated. Therein lies the essence and the strength of the democratic spirit for all the world to see. It's become clear in the 60 plus years since Brown that segregation in public schools hasn't really gone away. And black Jewish relations are in an uncertain place right now. But all American Jews should take pride in how our community has long tried to be on the right side of history. And we should all commit ourselves to putting in the work to improve black Jewish relations in a serious way. And I think I'll be bringing that to my Shabbat table this week. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod@ajc.org. at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us.
1: Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod.